0: You're listening to a podcast
1: from the BMJ. The fact that not everything published is equally illuminating is obvious to anyone who's read a scientific journal. The fact that many things published only tell half the story is also true. So how can clinicians, let alone patients, tell what level of trust to give any one article? To help with this, the Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine in Oxford published, almost two decades ago, a hierarchy of evidence, They've just updated it, and I'm joined on the phone by Professor Martin Dawes from the University of British Columbia's Department of Family Medicine. Thanks for talking to us today, Martin.
2: Uh, Thanks very much for uh, inviting me on.
1: So you helped write this original version. What was this original hierarchy of evidence?
2: So this was in response to the development of meta-analysis and systematic reviews, but also evidence that uh, the type of trial... Um, whether it was re- retrospective, perspective, and other factors, would alter the, uh, the uh, effect seen, um, And this was the case for not only therapy, um, but for diagnostic tests and also prognosis. So we felt that it was a good time to put together a table that would actually just draw out some of these differences in the methodology of the study um, and in terms of the reliability or the truth uh, reflected by those articles.
1: And are you talking about individual papers there, you know, going through and saying about each one published, or are you talking about groups of papers?
2: I'm talking about both. So that it, it it points out to the reader that there are methodological issues with papers, such as whether retrospective or prospective, whether every patient had the gold standard diagnostic test or not, but also groupings of papers such as systematic reviews, and how the systematic reviews were done and what sort of papers they include as well.
1: So could you just sort of, in a very quick way, summarise what that hierarchy of evidence looked like?
2: Well, it's it's broken down for um, various questions. So some questions would be about therapy, some about prognosis, some about harm. Um, and so we felt that it was good to start with that uh, um, on the left hand side of the table, and then working across the top how what sort of paper would give you the best, most reliable answer so the commonest example is for therapy if you 've got a therapy question, does this drug compared to that drug uh, produce a better outcome you 'd be looking for a systematic review of well performed randomized controlled trials mm-hmm. um, and then as the evidence becomes less available, um, perhaps the truth is not so well reflected until you get down to uh, case series or individual cases. But we've never said that these are not important, and I I allude to the fact that uh, the discovery of AIDS was reported by describing eight cases. So it's not that the case series or individual case descriptions aren't important, it's just how much truth or validity they would um, have in in a general world, and obviously some are absolutely they represent the truth as in the eight cases of AIDS or in others not so
1: okay so this table has just been updated what 's changed in this new version
2: so we've we've tried to simplify we we broke down uh, into many levels the individual levels of of evidence and we 've also moved away so we've 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 reduced those we don 't have one a one b one c and we 've also started to talk about steps rather than levels of evidence um, and th- that's that 's a very useful thing if you say, well, this is level one evidence, therefore it 's got to be good uh, or this is level five it 's not good um, that, that's that 's not the message that we want to send um, it's really about how you look at the findings when you've done a search of MEDLINE um, or someone brings you a paper and you want to say, OK, so where does this fit? Uh, is this going to be the best evidence that ever will exist or is this something maybe that's just starting and I should wait until there's more evidence before I start this therapy or this test?
1: Now, you talked about having a search of MEDLINE practically for a clinician you know on the job are there any tools perhaps in medline or, or elsewhere to help them use this this table in a crunchy way to to quickly drill into the best evidence that's available on a particular thing they're searching for
2: absolutely i mean one of the uh, search and so medline is medline um and the data exists it's the search engine that you use and so you might be using um pubmed uh you might be using trip and 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 Particularly, I like using TRIP because uh, when you put in your search terms, um, on the right-hand side, up will come uh, a list, and it'll have evidence-based synopses, guidelines. One of them will be systematic reviews, and then it'll break them down also into articles on therapy, etiology, diagnosis. And so there are search engines, and that's not the only one, um, which will nearly reflect the levels of evidence not quite but i mean at least it will tell you okay here are the systematic reviews so you can say right well i'm going to start with them because they are probably represent the most likely the the truth about this issue a lot of people do bring evidence from the internet and other places and often these are articles that uh, take mechanism-based reasoning and, and a typical one is antioxidants um if this food or this this drug contains lots of antioxidants, it must be good for me, doctor. And and you can actually say, well, if you look at this table, uh, you can say very clearly, well, actually, you know, it's based on a mechanism. So they've, they've developed it from a theory, but they actually haven't tested it on anyone. Um, so we don't actually know that this food or this drug with lots of antioxidants is then going to go on and prolong your life or reduce heart attacks or, or whatever it can, claims.
1: A lot's happened in the the almost two decades since this was first published. Where do you see the next step for this hierarchy of evidence going?
2: Well, I actually see it uh, with the uh, search engines. So uh, I I see um, the ability of search engines to actually do a lot more of the filtering. Um, That is to say, look, this is uh, a level three study. Um, But did you know that there are two... Level one studies are the same thing that you're looking for. And so actually to help the uh, the searcher um, say, okay, there are 20 studies, but actually that this study has your population um, and that's where it really gets interesting. So that the the randomized controlled trial might not include your type of patient, but there was a case control study that did include your sorts of patients and it seems to say the same thing as the randomized controlled trial. So then you start to really use uh, the table um, in a very much more strategic way. But it will rely on the search engines being developed a bit more than they are now.
1: And Martin's written an editorial on the hierarchy of evidence, which is now available on bmj.com. Infographics have taken off in the last few years. Many of you may have read the book, Information is Beautiful, by the data journalist come designer David McCandless. You may have seen him give a TED Talk or even perhaps have a set two on BBC's Newsnight. But if not, you'll certainly have seen some of his iconic images that regularly grace the pages of the press. Earlier this week, David came into the BMJ to talk to us about representing data. I grabbed him for a quick interview to find out more. One thing that lots of people listening to this might have seen is your snake oil diagram where you list... uh, various things that people can take List. well yeah exactly show various things that people can take um and uh against the evidence for their efficacy what inspired you to do that initially
0: i'm a bit of a health nut and it always frustrated me that i didn't know what to take in order to enhance my health nutritional supplement wise as you know every it seems there's a, a new study that says vitamin C is essential for health or you need to take it when you've got a cold or you need to do this and you need to do that and the next week there's a contradictory study that comes out so it's just very frustrating so I just need I wanted to know once and for all what was worth taking and what wasn't taking
1: mm. and was you, taking. you know you see things like this maybe with a, a slightly more of an advertising bent So where did you get your information from to try and make sure that that wasn't happening?
0: Yeah, well, I had to be be certain the information was as as correct and as tight as possible. So the first stop was Cochrane. So finding uh, meta-studies of any of these substances, um, which we, I'd say about maybe 40-50% had some rigorous meta-studies, so we used those. And then other meta-studies like BMJ uh, material, and then when we ran out of meta-studies, we simply scraped, I say we, as me and a couple of other researchers, we went through PubMed manually and pulled all the studies for all the remaining uh, supplements.
1: That must have taken forever.
0: Yeah, and we was. I mean, it wasn't too, it was quite difficult. And we, obviously only human trials, only RCTs, only large trials, only recent ones. So we had a, a load of criteria. Once we started looking at meta-studies, we saw there was an inherent kind of scale already in a mess study, a Cochrane mess study is a pretty much a gold standard, um, and they themselves were rating the evidence the, within the trial itself, so we use that as the kind of baseline. And then I think it's the American Nutritional Society, one arm of the U.S. government that deals exclusively with um, nutritional supplements, they had their own rating scale based on A, B, C, D, so we cross reference with that. And then for the PubMed um, studies, we simply gather them all together and uh, formed, you know, try to establish our own relatively subjective um, view based on the sheer preponderance of data.
1: And looking at this, it's a really nice graphic um, as well. It's, it's visually pleasing. When you set out to do these, do you want to do something that's beautiful um, or something that's you know, entirely accurate? Is there... A trade-off? Do you manage to do both? How does that work? Well, the the,
0: I, the ideal is both, doing both something beautiful and informative, because that's great design. I think something that works and is also attractive and, and uh, draws you in, and that the tra- the design serves the function of it. So it's not only it's not just eye candy. It's not just good looking for the sake of it. It's actually the the design is enhancing the function. So you can see things more clearly. You can follow the pattern or see the structure that you need to see. Tells the story.
1: Mm. I mean, I suppose with that, there's also a danger that one side could prevail and, you know, maybe an aesthetic choice would would overwhelm the data and create misunderstanding. I mean, has that ever happened to something that you've done um, or or any other sort of... I
0: think it's definitely a danger. Uh, one thing, it's almost... Well, I would say there's a bit of a failsafe built into these diagrams. A diagram that's imbalanced informationally and looks terrible is just... You know, you just look at it. You don't get it. You're not interested in it. Similarly, something that's um, uh, over-designed but has no content, you get bored by. It. So it's almost like you, you, there's a way. The balance is inherent in the medium. If you get it right, it just it just kind of
1: works. It comes and you together. Just feel it. Yeah. Okay. Have you ever been surprised by you know someone being unable to interpret or or in fact misinterpreting um, your work?
0: I think um, misinterpretation. Uh, I've not encountered that so much. What I, I do encounter, which is, I think, a bit more interesting, is um, uh, not me not seeing my own biases. So often, not often, but sometimes, I've released an image and I've thought, yeah, this is pretty, it's good. I've, I've factored in this, I've factored in this perspective. I've got the data sheet. And the stuff I haven't seen just because of my own process or whatever. And I put it online. And immediately, like, look, this is the brilliant thing about the internet. People see it, you know, the great minds on the web come and point this stuff out to me. And it's just highlighted that thing that creativity um, and dealing with large subjects, you need, you almost need like a collaborative approach where you need to be able to share your process so that people can correct you and enhance what you've done.
1: Peer review your pictures. Yeah, peer review, truly. Really. Yeah. Have you ever had to retract anything?
0: Yeah, I did. Uh, I did a visual about the volcan- volcano in, in Iceland and I, uh, we had a, uh, a terrible typo, basically, that decreased one data point by a magnitude of 10, <laughs> which obviously dramatized the story and and the image that I created. And then um, three days later, somebody pointed out this error, and I was just... Well, I was ashamed, and I had to issue a retraction and and uh, reissue the diagram. But luckily, the diagrams on my website, they're all single files, so I can update them, and they instantly change. Mm. If somebody's linked to it, it instantly changes everywhere. So there's a bit of a fail-safe there, but no. Yeah, it's, it's horrible to get things wrong.
1: And quite hard to do, I suppose. Um, you know, if you retract a scientific paper, someone won't... It's not so immediately compelling. It's an image, you know. That image is going to stay with someone. Right. I mean, have you found that? Have you, you know, the people? Do you think that's affected how people perceived what's going on with the volcano? Yeah,
0: I think luckily in that instance the the subject matter was slightly frivolous, so I didn't I didn't I felt shame for getting the mistake, making the mistake, but I I didn't feel like it, it had too much serious an impact. But it got me. It alerted me to I needed to you know, plug leaks in my process and get, get um, you know, my fact-checking sorted.
1: Great. Well, David, thank you very much thank for you. taking time to talk to us Pleasure. today. And all of the images David talked about there are available on his blog, linked to from the podcast website. That's all for this week. We'll be back next week with more from the world of health. Join us then.
0: For more information about this program and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.